0: Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast, I'm Craig Kringle. I started this podcast on a whim a few years ago, and the first three episodes I did really quickly in a rush. Needless to say, things got better when I actually planned what I was doing, got a little better at editing, and was able to smooth things out. I still think Dr. Johnson's book is excellent, and I really wish I could have done a better job editing his interview. But you'll probably get a better sense of what the podcast is all about if you skip ahead a few episodes. In the meantime, here's the first one.
1: Santa Claus, the original hippie.
0: So the heck with old
1: Santa Claus, when he goes dashing through the snow, I hope
0: he falls. He smiled as he said, with a twinkle in his eye, Merry Christmas to all, now you're all gonna die.
1: Christmas with the devil.
0: Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I am Craig Kringle, your host. thought I'd try this out this year since we have over a few thousand uh, followers scattered around Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook. Thank you all so much for having fun with me as I post all those crazy cards, but I wanted to offer something a little bit different uh, since, like I said, we're starting to get a large community uh, around these few sites, and I'm making a lot of friends in a lot of different places. So thank you all so much. I know my last name is really not Kringle. Uh, I'm not sure how many episodes we're going to get out of this, but I hope to at least get four or five throughout December before Christmas time. Um, Got a couple interviews lined up. In fact, that's what our first episode is going to be today, an interview uh, with a writer of an excellent book that I just read this last month that I really hope you'll pick up, too. Uh, But otherwise, we got some weird music we're going to share, a couple other ideas, and if you have any fun ideas, please let me know as well. You can get in touch with me on Tumblr, which is where I think the majority of people are. You can also find me on Twitter, weird underscore Christmas is what I am there. There is another guy named Weird Christmas there um, who I'm friends with, fun guy out of the U.K., just a weirdo. <laughs> Doesn't really post any sort of Christmas stuff, but a real fun guy. Um, or any of the other places where you might see me. I'm going to get an email up to Just for Weird Christmas that will be on the website. Edit. It's weirdxmas at gmail.com. You can also follow the the written blog I've been trying to keep up at WordPress, which is just com. So without further ado, let's jump into it. But before we get started with the interview for our first episode, let's listen to a good classic Christmas carol.
1: More Jew, happy holidays. Any old dance that you like to do Happy holidays Eat, my drink up nibble gobble true Happy holidays Believe what you want to nothing's really true Happy holidays I say something
0: Now I'm feeling festive. David Kyle Johnson is a writer who, just last year, came out with a book called "The Myths That Stole Christmas: Seven Misconceptions That Hijacked the Holiday and How We Can Take It Back." Really, really fun book. Uh, Kyle is a philosopher out of he's an associate professor of philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania, and this book I think is something that a lot of folk who enjoy the kind of sense of humor I have on the site. Will uh, appreciate, too. But it's also really good. And there's a nice mix here of really being someone who, like me, um, is just in love with the holidays, but also loves the history and loves to really know some of the truth and some of the changes of things that have happened over time. And has a uh, a good bit of fun poking fun at it along the way. So like I said, uh, Kyle is an associate professor of philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania. He has just written this book, but he's also written a lot. He has blogs on the Huffington Post, on Psychology Today, and I'll have some links to those on the WordPress site and other places. Um, But he's also edited a few books on philosophy and pop culture in particular, as well as um, a number of traditional academic uh, essays and publications. But he's written one called Inception in Philosophy, and one called, or excuse me, edited one called Inception in Philosophy and Heroes in Philosophy. He's also done two courses for a lecture company that if you don't know about, I encourage you to look up. It's called The Great Courses. I used to have a long commute and listen to a ton of these. Really informative, really well done with excellent professors. Uh, The two that he's done are called First Big Questions in Philosophy, and the second called Exploring Metaphysics. Kyle, thank you very much for doing this, and, and welcome to the very first podcast, and thank you so much for being the first one for me. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, why don't, if you don't mind, would you just give a quick summary of the book so that uh, those who haven't read it can, you know, know what's going on?
1: Yeah. So, the Myths that stole Christmas is a kind of unusual book. Uh, when I summarize it, it almost sounds like a self help book uh, <laughs> because it's about like. How to celebrate the holiday in a, in a better way, and if you're frustrated with the, with with Christmas, um, what can you do about it? How can you how can you make Christmas better work for you? And so it, it kind of sounds like a self help book uh, in that kind of way, but it's really nothing of the kind. Um, it's it's really it's it's well the story about how I came to write it is a little bit different, but it's birthed out of a frustration, or it kind of starts out by pointing to frustrations that people have. Uh, with Christmas uh, about spending about parties about obligations that we don't want that we don't want forced upon us that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that everybody is thinks Christmas like Christmas could be better than it is right and people get frustrated with Christmas and so it's kind of an attempt to empower people in a certain kind of way to realize there actually is something that you could do about this. You don't have to be a slave to it. Um, you can't actually make Christmas what you want it to be and celebrate it in however, whatever way pretty much you want to, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but in an attempt to try to make that case, I really dig into the historical details uh, and uh, of of Christmas and where it comes from and what its true origins are and like true historical origins are and then I'll make arguments against like I make arguments against Christmas spending I talk about the war on Christmas in one chapter I talk about the Santa Claus lie right so it's it's a way to kind of explore like really the kind of you can make Christmas better is all kind of an excuse to explore all of these issues that that surround Christmas that I find really fascinating uh, and interesting. Uh, and that a lot of people don't know. I think Christmas is one of the things that's most most shrouded in myth. Like there's all these misconceptions about what Christ- Christmas is and where it comes from. And it feeds into making Christmas a worst holiday. And so I'm just trying to make it
0: better. Uh, yeah, there's the... That's great. Anyway. No, that's great. That's wonderful. I, I think that, you know, I think that's actually, that's a good service, done <laughs> a good service. Oh. But, but one thing I know too, probably, and that I've seen in some reviews of the book is that, you know, you have that, but then a lot of people have, I think, you know, they come back, like they see it as a challenge in, in certain ways. So are there, you know, which myths that you talk about have, have probably gotten the most criticism from readers or pushback in different ways?
1: Oh, definitely. This my, my, my disagreement with the Santa Claus lies. So in chapter six, I argue that parents should not lie to their children about Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's like, I I wrote an op-ed for the Baltimore sun back in 2009. I think that's how long I've been doing this. Uh, and you talk about vitriol. I mean, (laughs) I really got, I really heard it. Um, I got all kinds of email and snail mail and really unusual stuff. Um, and so that's, and I've continued to post about it on my psychology today blog and done some guest you know, guest posts for some other places and podcasts and that kind of stuff. And I, I get a lot of pushback on that because people really, um, uh, a lot of people will disagree and think it's perfectly fine to lie to their kids about Santa Claus. But I will also add that I also get, really it's kind of averaged out over the years. I get just as much, what was the right word? A fan mail as I do hate mail. Um, A lot of parents, a lot of people emailed me saying, oh, I'm so glad to have found this. I totally agree. I thought I was the only one. Um, I'm so glad to see someone else is on my side and making the kind of arguments that I want to make. You know, my friends who disagree with me, I'm going to show them your article and and explain why I do this. I'm not crazy for not wanting to lie to my kids (laughs) about Santa. There are legitimate worries here. Um, And so, like, you know, people kind of – because it's so socially taboo – to not lie to your kids about Santa, uh, people kind of hide, uh, the fact that they, that they, you know, don't participate in this. And so it leaves the, you know, leaves one with the impression that they're the only ones that don't do it. When in fact, it's, it's a lot more common than you think. There are a lot, and I found this out as I've just canvassed friends and heard from people that there's, there's a lot more people that have the problems I have with the Santa lie and don't participate in the Santa lie, uh, than you think there are. You're, yeah, So you're not alone out there. If you're listening to this and you don't lie to your kids about Santa, you think it's a bad thing, you're not alone. There are other people out there. Uh, you just got to find them.
0: That's pretty fun. Did anyone come up? Like you said, you've gotten a ton of, of responses to that. Has anyone given you a, a good counter that you really think, um, not that maybe changed your mind, but that actually you know, gave you some pause? Because one thing uh- I like is that you've got all that, the, the long list of common objections <laughs> um, in the book, which right. I like, yeah. I really I thought that was a fun way to to go at it. But um, but did anyone after that was published? Does anyone come up with anything new that you know that that you know made you think a little harder?
1: Not that i not that I recall the, the the only one that I found moderately convincing. I think I actually mentioned in the book, which is you need to teach children to be skeptical of authority figures, and so the best way to do this is to be an authority figure in their life. And they'll lie to them,
0: and then they'll <laughs> learn from
1: that that you shouldn't trust authority figures, right? Um, which I, I think kids should have a healthy you know, kind of skepticism of authority, authority figures. They should you know, uh, learn that uh, often people lie to them, and so they need to investigate things for themselves and come to rational conclusions on their own. I think that's a good thing, um, but I do think they can learn that without their parents uh, lying to lie them, them. Uh, that, that children should be able to trust their parents and it's good for children to trust their parents Absolutely. and they're not being lied to by their, you know, by their parents and stuff so well, that's one, my reply but that's, that's the most convincing argument I've seen
0: that's got you well one thing that, that came happened actually after I read that and that I didn't realize I was going to have to face this year I've got two boys at very different ages and the older one of course knows what's up and the younger kid is still sort of on the cusp of believing and where we i found myself in this odd situation this year of okay do i make my older son participate in the lie this year and that's a different that's an even more complicated spin it's like not just myself and the child but now i'm making my other child deceive his brother when that's precisely not what we teach him to do any other time of the year so Right. Yeah, that was a different, yeah, I think that's, a different spin that's another, on it. I mean, I haven't thought about that angle. That's another yeah. kind of worry uh,
1: that you have there, right, is you yeah. end up like you're not only really teaching some bad lessons, I think, to the kid you're lying to, but you could also be teaching some bad lessons
0: to the kid you're making lie. Exactly, um, exactly. That's yeah, fun. that's good. That's good. I like it. So while you were researching, I'm curious. I mean, it, it seems, and, and I hope I'm, it's coming across in your book correctly, that you know you really do have a a big fond love of a lot of things about Christmas. It doesn't seem like there's, you know, this is not, you know, a total attack or anything like that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, like I I try to make that clear at the front of the book,
1: that I I celebrate Christmas, I put up Christmas lights, I really enjoy Christmas. Um, That's why I studied it, is because I like it, and my study didn't change that.
0: Gotcha. So one thing I was curious about is, while you were doing a lot of the research... Did anything that you had previously enjoyed get ruined in any way? Like, did those? Did anything for you personally get kind of demythologized in a way that that you didn't necessarily expect?
1: Well, certainly things got demythologized for me, but that didn't decrease my enjoyment of them; that increased my enjoyment
0: of mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe I am strange this way, um, but I have trouble enjoying something in that way unless I really feel like I understand where it came from and why I'm doing it. Gotcha. Right? So, um, kind of a side point, but like, um, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings, but I never was completely satisfied with the story because I wanted to know how all this came about Mm -hmm. and how everybody, Mm -hmm. like, I wanted everybody's backstory. I wanted to see what they were, right? And so I I read Silmarillion and I read, like, all, you know, all this this, this information about where these characters come from to kind of understand, you know, how the War of the Ring finds its place in this world and what it's really about, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I find it, like, so much more satisfying to, you know, when I see something happen. Like, I, I find when you know when, when Gandalf fights the Belrog, I know what a Belrog is and where they came from and why it's in the mountain. And, like, ah oh, that's such a much more satisfying part of the story than just this kind of cool monster, right? So the same thing is true for Christmas, right? Like, we do all of these things. Why do we do... Why do we put up a dead tree in the middle of our living room at the end of December and put lights on it. Right. Like what purpose does that serve? That, I mean, it's a very strange thing. Um, why do we pretend to fool our children into believing, uh, that a big giant fat man in a red suit will come by, but only when they're sleeping and like, and deliver presents. Like why do we, that's just a strange thing. Um, Why do we do this? Why do we give, you know, kids presents? Why do we, uh, what's, where's the red and green come from? Uh, why mistletoe? Why in the world do we think that we have to kiss people when we're underneath mistletoe? Like, like the tradition itself was never good enough for me. I wanted to know where these things came from. And then once you find out where they come come from, I find them so much more enjoyable. I think it's like, oh, I understand exactly what we're doing with the Christmas tree. I know where it comes from. It makes sense. Uh, I understand the tradition. Um, so I just find it so it does demythologize it for me, but it, to me it makes it more enjoyable to understand where it's coming.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. No, I, I appreciate that. Like I was telling you that I've got you know all of these cards that that we that I think kind of on the blog people make fun of, and that's part of the, the fun that we have with doing that. And a couple of years right. ago, somebody challenged me, and they were like, you know, you seem like all you're doing is making fun of the holidays and and like not taking anything seriously. And I actually wrote a long response saying, no, I think that actually. You know, showing these things and laughing at how it changes over time, and and playing with the anachronisms actually is you know a way to celebrate that stuff and a way to sort of engage with it in a way that that really, in a way, respects the history and you know with a with a smirk, but still you know right. is a is a better way to to come at it rather than yeah keeping a myth yeah so yeah. Good. What if, what if my, along that line one of my favorite
1: things we were talking about um before we, we started to hit record um Grossman's uh, Christmas Curiosities book
0: yes. Yeah.
1: right mm-hmm. uh, and at the end of it at the end of it there's these strange christmas cards that are of the dead birds
0: yes yes indeed
1: right like it's just like here's a dead bird merry christmas mm-hmm. what is that uh, it's just the weirdest thing it's the, and it's it's those those little curiosities like that are just so fun to look at and try to figure out what's going on. And I don't know. I don't know. I understand that. I tried to find those out. I think even Grossman says it's kind of a mystery as to why these things are Christmas cards.
0: Yeah. Um, no, he he says that the best he could do, I think, there was that maybe it was supposed to elicit sympathy because, you know, your Victorian era, sympathy is supposed to be a big thing and you're supposed to feel bad for the bird. And and that right. could be, um, you know, one thing I think, I actually think I might have them figured out. And I've tried to tell people this before, but there's a, an old Celtic tradition called the Ren Day that would, that would happen during that time where... Oh. Part of what they do is they'd go out and find a bird and and kill the bird, and then in, there would be a parade around the town, and it would kind of be like a part of the wassailing tradition. Um, okay. And so I was wondering, like, is there still? But but you'll see, apparently, in certain Celtic images, birds and dead birds, um, and never necessarily associated with Christmas cards. But I was curious if there was still supposed to be, you know, if we're talking about a hundred, however many years ago if there was still just enough of a resonance with that, that it could still have some kind of, you know, Obvious meaning when someone sees it, and for us, it's just so anachronistic that we don't get it at all. Right. I have no, I have no idea if that's true, but it's it's the best <laughs> I could come up with. <laughs> that's, so, that sounds pretty good to me. No. That sounds better than Grossman's explanation, <laughs> right. I think. So, so that, I,
1: I've never, would never heard of Day, but that's, that's fascinating. It's good
0: stuff. Best I've got, but it's yeah. I found a few others. He, I think he has two in there. I've got, I think I've got four of those cards now. So total of just dead birds. That's great. Those are those are the best things. Um, <laughs> well, good. Well, speaking of sort of going back in the past like that, uh, Santa is one that um i really particularly enjoyed that chapter because i've done a lot of reading about you know santa traditions and arguments about relationship to saint nicholas and and how close santa claus is to a christian tradition um and and you have a lot about that and would you mind sort of giving what you take your best sort of approach to i guess call it the genealogy of santa claus at this point where where do you think um based on what you've researched where do you think he comes from yeah, so this
1: is actually where the book kind of finds its origins. I what what first inspired the book was me reading this self-published book called A Heathen's Guide to Christmas, <laughs> uh, and I found it on Amazon somewhere. And it was some grad student, uh, for Hooper, I think William Hooper, I think is the name of the kid um, who wrote it. And I, I looked at that, and it was and it was fascinating. I learned all these fascinating things, and then like but it was self-published i wasn't sure if it was actually true um and so i started like tracking down his sources to try to figure out if it was act- and this led me down this just rabbit hole right like mm-hmm. i ended up reading you know skeeper's book and nessenbaum's book and then it just after after, after you know, book after book after book um and i found that i think if i remember correctly a lot of what hooper says is, is is not entirely accurate at least i couldn't confirm a lot of what it says uh but in a lot of the kind of general stroke things were right so uh so to answer your question more directly here uh so what, what is the, the history of, of Santa Claus? I think that ultimately, I think Sceifer's right. So Skeifer, we we mentioned this in an email. Sceifer's got this book called uh, Santa Claus Last of the Wild Men, mm-hmm. where she argues that the precursor to Santa Claus is this old fertility god that was supposed to be half man, half beast, um, and that this tradition took on numerous forms, especially in Europe, uh, and that essentially this thing survives through the Middle Ages until the Christians come upon it, uh, and then they try to Christianize it, and it doesn't quite work right. Uh, and so, uh, Christianize is not the right word. They try to incorporate it into their mythology, but they don't try to like so many other pagan gods. They just try to saint, right? They just try to literally Christianize them. In that, they would turn them into into part of their pantheon, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they would take, you know, Mars become Saint Martin, uh, and you know, I'm trying to think of some other ones. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but there's a number of of, of Catholic saints that were never actually historical people at all. They were just these pagan gods that the church declared as saints. Um, and that they didn't exactly do that with, well, they, they sort of did that with the wild man. Um, they they tried to demonize him at one point to keep people from worshiping him uh, and literally demonize him as in they declared him to be the devil. Um, and this is why the devil is... Typically depicted with horns and hooves mm-hmm. and a tail mm-hmm. and a pitchfork is because usually the half beast that the wild man was was a goat. So he was, you know, he had cloven hooves and a pitchfork. Pitchfork was a fertility symbol, but he had the, the horns and that kind of stuff. And that's why the devil looks like he does today is because he's based on the wild man. Um, but they also made him the slave of a saint, St. Nicholas. Um, but as I don't want to give away too much of the chapter here, but I argue. Uh, in the in the book, that I don't actually think that St. Nicholas was an actual historical figure. I think that he was like these other saints. He's just a sainted version of a pagan god. And the pagan god that he's a saintly version of is the wild man. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The wild man was often called Klaus. Uh, this is in, you know, Germanic uh, peoples. Um, and Klaus is short for Nicholas. Niklaus. Uh, in German, and if you were to Saint the Klaus, the the wild man, uh, you would call him Saint Nicholas, uh, and that he when he first appears, like the historical evidence for Saint Nicholas is not very good at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when when Nicholas first appears, he already has this weird wild man uh, type figure in tow. Uh, he is the the, the punisher, basically um, for Nicholas's good side, and it, it seems that they're inter- they're interchangeable in a lot of places. Um, and then it's really from that, that St. Nicholas comes and then essentially like the very, very short version of the story is that St. Nicholas and his demonic helper, um, who visit people's houses around, you know, December uh, 6th, um, uh, in Europe for various reasons. There's a whole other story there, um, get combined into one single character called Belsnickel, mm-hmm. the Pennsylvania Germans were very fond of, which I go and see. Every year, I go see a Bell's Nickel every year at Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Oh, that's great. Um,
0: In fact, there's a picture yeah, of you with one, isn't there, at the end of the book? I think yeah, you have not yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's the Bell's Nickel. He actually has horns now. Oh. <laughs> like the picture I have, he's, he, he wears, that's like, yeah, good stuff. Um, but, uh, and that um, our, our, our image of Santa mostly come from, comes from Clement Clark Moore's poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, originally called A Visit from St. Nicholas, and that it seems that he's mostly borrowing from the Bell's Nickel tradition. Uh, his fur from his head to his foot, his sooty appearance, uh, his bag full of treats, uh, all of that seems to be borrowed from the bell stickle tradition. Uh, and so there's like kind of a rough history, um, of where Santa Claus comes from. And like, I mean, the, the really cool part of it is this helper that St. Nicholas has, which he still has in Europe. St. Nicholas is not like St. Nicholas has not gone away. He still exists in Europe. Uh, but when he appears in places in Europe, like in Germany, especially Austria, um, He usually has this demonic helper in tow, uh, in Austria, he's called Krampus and he is the most horrible, terrible thing you've ever seen. Uh, he's awesome. Um, he basically is this demonic goat man with horns sticking out of his head. They have these wooden masks that are terrifying. They drag chains behind them so you can hear them. He usually has big giant cowbells wrapped around his waist. Uh, he can literally be dragging a bowl, like a, like a, like a, like a pot of fire behind him in these Krampus parades. Um. (laughs) Just it's just terrifying. Look you know, you can look it up online. Uh, and, and Krampus has kind of made a comeback. I have a list in the chapter of all these different places that Krampus has started appearing in pop culture.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, you know, he
1: he hosted a a cartoon fiasco on Comedy Central Comedy Central or Cartoon Network the other year mm. and like he's he's kinda of become a pop culture icon, which is kinda of cool.
0: It is. And one thing I think is fun about that, too, is that people will, will then look back and say, like, oh, yeah, in, in Europe, Krampus is the, the – he's like Santa Claus's helper. But if Skeifer and, – and what you're talking about is right – Santa Claus is Krampus, like, right? I mean, he's coming – Yeah. He's – yeah. Yeah.
1: He has way more in common with Krampus than, Saint Nicholas. Right. Right? right. Like, I mean, the fur uh, and the, the punishing, uh, the bells, the jingle bells that you hear –
0: those belong to those are basically echoes of the chains. Right, um, that's right. Oh, I remember. Krampus, yeah, yes. Yeah, right, right. Krampus
1: had the chains, and that's how you would know Saint Nicholas was coming because you could hear his his shelper he had in chains behind him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When
1: the when the Pennsylvania Germans combined Nicholas and Krampus into one character and turned him into bells nickel, those chains turn into bells. But you still hear him coming when you hear the bells jingling, and still today you you hear Santa is coming when you hear the sleigh bells. But it's all, it all traces back to Cropus's chains.
0: Um, <laughs> I so,
1: that. like, I mean, really, I mean, especially if you're just talking about, like, the historical St. Nicholas, all Santa has in common with, with him is a moniker. He mm-hmm. sometimes is called St. Nicholas, right, or, or right. Jolly St. Nick, right? Um, and the December visiting. But even the December visiting is something that Cropus did, too. And so, like, like, not even that he has in common with him. Um so, yeah, like, uh, there, he has way more in common with Compus, uh than he does with St. Nicholas, most definitely.
0: That's great. That's great. That's fun. Well, I'm curious, um, sort of not to ask you to go beyond the book a little bit, but I know I've already heard so many friends sort of talk about, um, you know, not necessarily looking forward to, uh, you know, Christmas this year with their extended families um, because of politics or because of other differences <laughs> that are going on. Um, yeah, going to be Real interesting Thanksgiving I, and holiday I know. season. Well, yeah. does, so two, I have two two sides to a question, I guess. One, I'm sort of curious does does in your hope I would I would imagine that you know part of your hope is that understanding the the wider variety of traditions that go into Christmas can kind of make it easier for other people to see different traditions and sort of make them their own and 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 be maybe more responsible or more respectful of, of different traditions and of other people's traditions. But do you think that maybe you know, taking that approach to Christmas traditions and learning more of the history could actually help with, with um, I don't know, easing up on our own sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, self-righteousness about certain types of traditions yeah. that we take? Well, yeah, certainly with the self-righteousness about traditions, right? I don't know if this is
1: going to solve any political disputes, but um, it will, I think, like, so there's a couple of reasons that I, so there's, that I lay out the history. So there's three chapters. Um, the book's kind of laid out where I have a chapter on history. Of, of the holiday, and then I relate that to some some issue like the war on Christmas. Another chapter on like you know on, on Christmas history at a different time, uh, and then relate that to you know some other kind of issue of a modern day Christmas, right? It's kind of laid out that way. And I, and I think that the reason I, I spend so much time on the history is I think that it's really important to understand it for a couple of reasons. One is that when you understand where traditions come from, it's much easier to give them up when they are harmful, mm-hmm. right? So. Like one of the examples I used at the very beginning of the book is how um, idiot Americans used to light candles in their Christmas trees, <laughs> and, it would, and, it, and it, would, it would burn down the tree and burn down their house, right? Uh, and uh, literally people were dying because of this Christmas tradition of putting candles – like cutting down a dead tree, putting it in your living room, and putting candles in it.
0: That's stupid. <laughs>
1: That's really stupid, especially when your house is made of wood, right? Uh, but people just kept doing it. It was killing people. People kept doing it because, hey, it's tradition, right? Um, if they had merely realized that whatever that tradition was coming uh, uh, was coming to be used in the early 1800s in America, that that tradition was really only about 100 years old uh, and that it wasn't even that popular in Germany until around the same time it was becoming popular in America mm-hmm. uh, and that the only reason that like the Germans – would light candles in a tree in their house is because their houses were made of stone so that if the tree burnt down, it wasn't a big deal. It wouldn't catch their entire <laughs> house on fire. Then they would might maybe think like, Oh, this, this doesn't date back hundreds of years. It's something that someone made up recently. Well, then I don't need to do that. Like it's so much easier to give up a tradition once you realize that someone made it up a couple days ago. Right. <laughs> um, and so like, so that's one reason I have for like exposing the history of it. It's just like, once you realize that a tradition is harmful, uh, it's, oh, it's It makes it easier to give it up. Okay, so the second reason, though, that I, that I talk about the history of it, and, and part of the reason, part of the one of the things I expose about the history of it is that no one really has a claim on Christmas or what Christmas is or how it's properly celebrated. So it's very commonly assumed that it's a Christian holiday, and so that if you don't have Christ in your Christmas celebrations, you're doing it wrong because, you know— the, the, Christ is right there in the name, and it's part of—and that just historically, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the that, 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 that December celebrations certainly predate um, when Jesus would have been born by quite a few hundred years. Um, really, December celebrations predate by, by a couple thousand years. Um, that people were celebrating uh, in much the same way that we do now uh, in December, long before Jesus would have been born. Um, and that even the early church didn't even celebrate Christmas uh, once uh, Rome became Christianized, the Christians tried to appropriate it, uh, but really it continued to be to be celebrated in secular ways all the way through the Middle Ages. So much so that the Puritans tried to stamp it out because it was so secular, um, and, and it, it's never been celebrated primarily in a Christian way. And so when you when you realize it, it's not that it's bad to celebrate it in a Christian way if you're a Christian and you want to celebrate it that way. That's perfectly fine. But it's also not bad to celebrate it or improper to celebrate it in a non-Christian way, right? And so once you understand the history of the holiday and where the traditions come from, it's so much easier to say, I celebrate Christmas my way, you celebrate Christmas your way, and neither one of us is doing it right or wrong. It's just what the way we choose to celebrate. It's what works for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can really lead to a lot more tolerance uh, in people and just and just recognizing that, People just have different ways of celebrating. There's no right or wrong way to celebrate. There could be more harmful ways to celebrate. We could talk about that if you want to. Mm-hmm. But in regards to like what's proper and what's not, there's there's no right right or wrong answer to that. Um, so Christians can keep Christ in Christmas, but non Christians cannot have their Christmas celebrations have anything to do with, with Christ at all, and both are perfectly
0: legitimate. Gotcha. Well, that being said, do you do you have any ideas about what's going to happen with the war on Christmas now? You think we're going to start seeing more of it? And yeah, um, you so think like, that rhetoric's I mean, gonna be ramped up? Yeah,
1: I don't know. Like we're so inaugurations you're right in January, right? right? We may be so preoccupied with Trump and his cabinet and
0: what's gonna happen before Inauguration day that everyone may just forget about the war. <laughs> right? Like so like it,
1: it, it, it we had not issue this year, right? Um, but then again, if like all it would take is one single Trump you know, Trump tweet. About being mad about the war on Christmas or whatever, and it could blow, blow up bigger yeah. than it ever has before, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a, it's just a crapshoot. Who knows what's going to happen? Um,
0: well, I'm just hoping so we with, get some good Trump Christmas cards out of it. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, so, oh, I'm, yeah, you know, I thought about <laughs> that, right? Like, there, there's got to be some good.
1: There's got to be some good, good Trump Christmas cards coming out of this at some point. Lots of gold leaf, uh, and,
0: and yeah, yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, the nation's obviously more polarized than it ever has been, and the, the war on Christmas really is. Know, drives that you know derives from that polarization uh so it, it could get you know could get pretty bad but then again we could be just so preoccupied that
0: no one even notices indeed indeed well hopefully though we'll all get a little break hopefully around christmas time and the family the family conflicts won't be as as bad as i know some people are afraid they may be
1: so. yeah i've already heard stories about people like you know ramping up and Getting ready for
0: arguments and conflicts and stuff like that because there's just going to be no way to avoid it. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple friends who are already planning on separate Christmases, so which is not <laughs> not what you wanted, but but maybe is good at least this year. So, yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, and I just want to tell everybody else it's uh, Kyle Johnson. The book is "The Myths That Stole Christmas." Um, fun read. I mean, funny stuff all the way through, but also really informative. Um, you also, one thing I appreciate is you do a great job of. Um, Not only making your own case really well, but also doing, I think, a really excellent job of summarizing a lot of the other stuff that's been written out there. About the holidays, which I think also makes this book sort of doubly useful, because I mean, like oh. like Skeever's book and and a lot of the 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 Battle for Christmas book and a bunch of other things, you really get to the heart of those really well, which I think is great for oh. those who are interested. Thanks. So,
1: thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the book ended up coming out of so my research on Christmas was was motivated by that uh, the book I talked about before, The Pagan's Guide to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that turned, however, into a class. Like I ended up like all the research ended up motivating a class I teach here at Kings, where we did. Read Skifer and Nussbaum and, Baum, and, and uh, 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 Forbes and a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. Christmas books. Mm-hmm. And I've, so I've read them all like multiple times because I've taught this class multiple times. And so I ended up just like, I'll, I'll just put it all into one book uh, so that it's all kind of, I don't forget it. It's all summarized there. And so that's why there's, you know, kind of such reliance on those other sources. But uh, yeah, okay. thanks,
0: thanks for that compliment. Absolutely. You should work on the getting the great courses to uh, do a Christmas course. A... Oh, I have pitched it to them. Right? Oh, yeah?
1: So. Uh, oh yes, um, I don't, I've even tried to
0: like, just do, like, get, let me give one lecture and just Edit. like, you know, make it available weird for free Xmas or something right on, your, on your app or I haven't had any traction with it yet, uh. but uh, uh, yeah, so like, uh, as
1: you mentioned, I'm, I'm also a professor for the great courses, I've got two courses there, one called Exploring Metaphysics, uh, the other one called the Big, the Big Questions of Philosophy, neither of which have anything to do with Christmas, uh, but both of which take a kind of similar approach where I'm, Trying to summarize neatly other people's arguments, but then also give my own, you know, my own my own take on things, my own case on things, and and uh, and I've definitely like you guys need a class. just if it, even if it's just like six lectures or even just like one lecture that you could do, you guys really need a lecture on Christmas. Absolutely. Uh,
0: but well, I've noticed on their Facebook go. page they've started to do little one-off live videos every now and then like the, if you're, which I've seen and I'm actually, I hadn't thought of that. That might be something, you know, and they record them. Those are certainly recorded and available later, but I, but I've gotten to, you know, just be around when they, they sent out the notice that, you know, one's going live and they've been some good stuff. So I don't know, maybe if I I I forget,
1: do they do them in studio or do they do? Yes.
0: mm, It seems like they have a studio set up, but then I think they've had people Skype in or, or video conference in, and in one way or another to give it, um, they're, they're certainly not the sort of polished, you know, multiple camera things that that are right. on the recordings. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe if, uh, if I send a note saying, hey, why not something on Christmas? And people who listen to this do one. Maybe we can get you in there. That might be fun. Yeah, do that. Everybody <laughs> who wants to see this, like, yes, email the great courses and say, you really need to do something on Christmas, and it needs to be David Kyle Johnson. There you go. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to... I'm
1: going to email my uh, my contact there right now and pitch this idea to him. Good, we'll yeah. see where it goes.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Greg. Yep. So please go buy his book. I think, like I said, it's an excellent summary of all kinds of great history that's been done, as well as a lot of sort of crazy things that people have said and thought about Christmas. Well, guys, I hope you really enjoyed this. If you do have any suggestions for what other things might be fun on a podcast, please let me know at any of the sites where you follow this stuff or send me an email at weirdxmas at gmail.com, and that'll get straight to me. Otherwise, guys, thanks a lot for listening. Look forward to the next one when hopefully we'll have lots of fun, strange, odd music for the holidays. Take care. (laughs) Little
1: lip, little lip,